Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest is Alison Miller, long-time cybersecurity executive and founder and principal of a new company called Cartomancy Labs. Alison, welcome to the show. Let's start right there. What is Cartomancy Labs and what are you doing there? <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. I'm glad to be here. Cartomancy Labs is a very small, <laughs> i.e. one person, consultancy and advisory firm. I'm really trying to focus in on this overlap that I found between cybersecurity, but also fraud prevention, anti-abuse, some of these business problems that uh, tend to be adjacent or overlapping with cybersecurity. I'm seeing some convergence there. And one of the things that I've realized through my career travels is that what I really like is solving the human impact and of business problems of large platforms. And so that happens in cybersecurity, but it happens in some of these adjacent areas as well. Do you find it's a largely forgotten, overlooked adjacent area, this kind of fraud and... and, and uh, actually, no. I feel like it's becoming hot again in that I'm seeing what I think of as enterprise cybersecurity vendors. So, you know, authentication firms that have these extensive IAM offerings that they're they're bringing into large enterprises. They call names like Okta, for instance. Sure, like, like Okta. Okta is a great example. So Okta, a lot of folks are running Okta to secure their workforce and their corporate and production environments, but Okta is also offering consumer authentication options that can be wired in. And so I see this sort of interest in drift because there's actually a lot of money to be made for folks who have smart solutions that can reduce some of the problems and impact of things like payment fraud, billing fraud. Right. And we're starting to see some investment, VC investment in those areas as well, in in, in smaller companies tackling uh, consumer user identities and identities as a whole. Are you yes. bullish on the whole identity sector as uh, we're starting to see heavy spending on identity, whatever that means, it's got to, you know, it's, it, got, it gets mangled in the, in the gardener speak. Yeah, but yeah. are you starting to see the kinds of innovation around in, in identity that will be leapfrog? Hmm. Leapfrog. Leapfrog, I'm not so sure, but I'm bullish on identity because I feel like it's a forever problem. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that I've heard my, my friend Gunnar Peterson says, identity is the new perimeter. Uh, and I think that that is true. I think where I'm seeing some innovation is in what is sort of funny to me is in IAM speak, in enterprise speak, it's risk-based authentication. Right. That's part of the one of the ideas or pillars of zero trust, that you're taking the context, the reputation of the device, the entity, the process into consideration before making a yes-no decision. And that risk-based approach is how I've been practicing risk for years, but in consumer-facing systems. So... I'm bullish on identity because I think it's I think there are solutions out there that are finally able to tap into what folks have been hoping for from identity solutions for a long time. Um, but I'm not sure about leapfrogging because every IAM int- implementation I've ever worked on has been sort of ugly, deep in the infrastructure. You have to wire a lot of things in. Nothing is a magic bullet straight out of the box. It requires a lot of work to get things up and running. And nothing will be either, right? Like this is our reality for a while. There is no, there is no magic bullet coming either in, in this identity space or in this fraud prevention, this, this weird space where 
identities are part of the supply chain as well. You know, identity from over here gets popped another company from over here and then pops into another company over here. And it just feels like that's just the raw reality. Is that fair? I think that that's fair. And I think that that's a truism of risk-based approaches because there's something just uncertain. When you're taking a risk-based approach, you're factoring in the uncertainty. And a lot of how we have run IAM programs in the past, you can kind of imagine it. There's people are allowed to do things. These users are not allowed to do things. And it's very rigid. And -hmm. when you take a risk-based approach, it's a little bit more fluid because you're recognizing that there's some uncertainty that you're trying to factor in. (laughs) And that never goes away. What's the alternative? What is another approach or workable approach that you think could Well, I think that's the key. I I think at scale, the sort of user experience or the the usability, (laughs) um, you kind of have to uh, take a risk-based approach. So I'm not not sure that we can operate successfully if we assume and build these very rigid systems. So I think this is our response to the scale many of us are operating on now. We have to have machines make some of the decisions for us and and just recognize that there is some uncertainty always. You've had a pretty uh, significant successful career at places like Bank of America, Google, Electronic Arts, PayPal, eBay, Visa International, big, big brands. Yes. Uh, And more recently, CISO at Reddit, uh, uh, Mm -hmm. a company we all recognized. Is it easier to manage security and just run a security program in these highly, highly regulated industries like finance versus in smaller places where maybe the strict, the strict demands aren't there, but hmm. then you don't have budgets? Like, help me understand how you how how, how those two worlds. Yeah, I I think that's a I think that's a great question um, because. I sort of, you know, I'll rely on my economist crutch, which it depends. I think in uh, high confidence environments, highly regulated environments, there is, it's it's easier sometimes to make the business case because you don't have to make a business case. You right. can kind of rely on we have to. Correct. And uh, in some of those environments, I feel like um, regulators regulators can be pretty directive and prescriptive which I'm not sure in some ways that may be helpful. If you're, for example, trying to invest in new technology, then it may be helpful because that helps you get a check cut. But I'm not sure that it leads to the best outcomes because some of the best cybersecurity teams that I've been on have been nimble and uh, (laughs) crafty and (laughs) they've, they've hacked things together that are appropriate. Uh, given given where they are. And so I, I like to be able to innovate. And that's the other problem of highly regulated environments. While they demand, <laughs> they demand s- to see certain things in place, um, they also maybe add a little bit of risk aversion to the culture. So what I'm thinking about is when I was mapping out, like, what would be the uh, ideal future state stack for um, for a cybersecurity team, I was looking at where the innovation lives and the innovation lives where? It lives in s- tiny startups, which mm-hmm. don't necessarily scale to the needs of a large enterprise yet. And also there's a lot happening in the cloud or with some of these uh, techniques, you know, AI and ML driven techniques that, again, there's that uncertainty that gets factored in there. And I think in highly regulated 
environments, folks really like certainty. And you're missing out and they're missing out on a lot of innovation outside because like a lot of startups, they're too small to be absorbed. And some in, in some highly regulated industries, you're not even allowed to use startups. Let's say from Israel, let's say the best bit of technology is coming out of the Israeli ecosystem. You, you know, it's very difficult to get that into regulated right. industries. Does that mean that they're missing out on good tools? I'm I'm not sure. I think they're looking out the window, <laughs> gazing lovingly towards some of these innovations and waiting for them to be ready. I think some companies adopt these brand new technologies before they are ready. Um, I think that there's value in experimenting with the new technologies, and and I I, I think that environments who that have figured out how to carve off. Um, resources to do proof of concepts <laughs> right. before wiring things into the mothership, if you will. Uh, that's great. But I do think that there, it takes a long time to proof a technology that right. if you're bringing it into a regulated environment and that, that, <laughs> that time, uh, some of it is useful. It could be chalked up as experimentation and some of it is just slow. Right. <laughs> Uh, where do you stand on build versus buy in an enterprise security program? Because there's a Silicon Valley mentality that oh, we can't <laughs> buy. We can, we can build that ourselves. As soon as someone comes to the demo, it'd be like two, two engineers in the back room says, oh, we can build it ourselves. And, and it, it gets, it's very, very pervasive in certain parts of industry. Where do you stand on that? Is there like a perfect yeah. middle ground anywhere? <laughs> All right. I'll, I'm going to confess something. It's just going to stay between us, of course, and the listeners of your <laughs> podcast, which is I am a little bit on the build side of things. Um, and it was, you mentioned that Silicon Valley mentality. So <laughs> um, when I when I came out of the Valley, I had to learn all of the non-Valley names of, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you, when you come out of a build shop, you lose sight of what the industry brings and, and who's hot and all of that. And Are I you had describing to like that. the Bank of America experience as a build shop? Yeah, banks okay. are banks are well, banks are buy shops. Um, a, like a Google is a build shop, and Electronic Arts might be somewhere in between. Right. Um, Reddit is kind of somewhere in between because I think while while I admit to this terrible bias I have towards build, <laughs> um, I have come to terms with buying because buying is faster, and a lot of us are managing or leading cybersecurity teams that aren't full of software developers. This every every role that I have been in, I've had these long conversations with HR and recruiting about security engineer versus engineer comma security because it matters. Right. <laughs> yeah, hiring a software developer is very different than hiring someone who um, has spent their entire career in cybersecurity managing cybersecurity technology. Right. So um, I, I, I learned a lot through some of the organizations that were a little more on the buy side of things because I just I just realized how useful partnerships between these enterprises and kind of the the startup scene are in folks informing each other, enterprises informing the sort of the innovators about what are the problems that they're actually seeing not just the security problems, but the implementation problems, the <laughs> how do I manage this technology at scale problems. And then these innovators kind of coming back to the enterprises saying, this is what you might want to think about next. Right, um, right. And this is, this is a different way to solve this problem that we're seeing. It's a really interesting back and forth. 
Yeah, but the problem with the build side, though, right? And I'm glad you brought up HR because it becomes a people problem as well. You start to run into cases where an engineer builds this amazing thing and now he's bored. Yeah. Like he's bored. Like who's <laughs> going to maintain it? Now you have or to gone. figure out. Or gone. Right? In, yeah. in, and I'll get to tenures as well, like short tenures sure. and people bouncing around as well. How do you settle on a build uh, bias dealing with those raw realities where a lot of amazing tools get built and then you don't have people to manage it and it just gets it, it well i think that that's i think that's something you need to go into with eyes wide open and that is one of the reasons why i've sort of come to terms with and love to a certain extent buying things right. that will be maintained by people who are not me right exactly <laughs> and teams who are not me and uh, there's, you know, pricing and negotiation in that, mm-hmm. but I, it, it, it's total cost of ownership. When, when, when you get to a certain level, you need to look past this would be cool and right. move towards, is this an experiment or is this, is, is this a proof of concept or is this something we are going to staff and resource forever in order right. to keep this capability? And that's a raw reality for a lot of security leaders, which segues perfectly into my next two questions, which is on the labor market. I want to pick your brain on where mm-hmm. you think we are with the labor market. Coming out of the pandemic, we went through this so-called great resignation where people like right. you and I quit our jobs and <laughs> went off and did our own thing. And then, you know, it was a buyer's market. It was a it was an employer's, employee's market. Then it segged into layoffs, cuts, contractions, and this recalibration in cybersecurity. And now I'm not sure where we are. Where are right. we? Is there, is there a skills shortage? Is this an employer's market or a, or, or a buyer's market? I have I have believed for a while that um, we we have a matching problem in cybersecurity. I think that for many years there was a talent shortage that was driven by um, competitive companies overhiring. So I do think that part of what we are seeing is a correction. And then, of course, there's in cybersecurity specifically and in tech specifically, there's a bit of a correction. There's also just sort of the economic impacts of where are some of the places that we are seeing contraction after the, the, um, the pandemic? A lot of these are places that grew really, really, really fast because of the pandemic. They were offering um, services to folks who could, you know, they were right. staying at home. Um, and and things like that. So I, I think now I'm, what I'm hoping is that we, this, this, it's like, we've lowered the temp. It's not so hot. It's not so feverish in the market that folks will um, be thoughtful, both in hiring and in taking roles. And that we have sort of this temporary matching issue as folks kind of figure out um, where they are going next and companies figure out what their real needs are. <laughs> um, and and I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to come out of this as an industry stronger and a little bit more reasonable. I, I don't know, though, if the, the tenure thing. Yeah, the te- let's let's dig into the tenure thing because the tenure thing has a a, a flip side to it. If 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 the if the numbers are accurate, and let's say it's seventeen months, twenty nine months, thirty six months, whatever it is, this is so tenure is right on average. Right. Enterprises and and organizations are demanding transformational leaders. How how possibly could you be a transformational leader when it takes like even one year to just get ramped up and you you start to build <laughs> your pro- like it just doesn't make sense to me. Is this sustainable? I have come to believe 
in talking with a lot of different companies about what their cybersecurity leadership needs are. I think that we really are coming out with, there's a lot of different types of CISOs and different companies need different CISOs. I think the CISO of a startup is very different than the CISO of a company that's about to go public is a very different CISO of a large company that is public, right? So, so I think I think as companies grow and shift, I think that it's normal for folks to be like, you know what? I'm the startup CISO. I'm, this isn't a startup anymore. I'm not here for running this type of program. I'm going to go someplace else, start something from scratch. It's very similar to the founder story, right? You right. have these founder CEOs. They're serial founders. So I think we're I, I think we're seeing a little bit of that. I also think I kind of hope so I get getting a lot of questions about, you know, new regulations that affect CISOs yeah, or getting to that. lawsuits <laughs> that seem to affect CISOs and liability. And I think that like a lot of cybersecurity, you know, we're, we're not doctors, we're not attorneys. There aren't ta- there aren't sort of um, uh, except in some corner cases, there aren't tests that we need to pass. We're not held to a particular framework of practice. But I think that it is in our own best interest to start to figure out what what our, what our framework of practice is for CISOs especially. I'm not sure if it, I, I think there's so much innovation still happening in the cybersecurity industry. It's really hard to kind of like put people into boxes. I would, I would hate to see that. I, <laughs> I've never liked um, being pigeonholed in my career. And so I wouldn't want to do that. But I do think for CISOs, trying to figure out what is reasonable, acceptable um, bounds of responsibility, scope of an like appropriate scope. Right. I think those are things that we're going to be exploring in the next couple of years. Can we focus a little bit on the bigger CISO? Let's say someone walks into Twitter tomorrow, X tomorrow, and takes the CISO, right? I mean, okay, that's 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 an extreme case. I want to think of another organization. Let's say someone walks into a, again, a a public company. Okay, let's just say let's just say someone walks into a big tech-forward company. Correct. How long do you think it takes that person just to put his stamp on my, my, my philosophy, the way I think about security, the way I implement build versus buy? We are like, this is not a, this is not a one, two year process, right? Insert long pause. <laughs> I, I, I think that in some cases, in some cases it is shortened because the the it is through the interview process that some of that is decided and selected most executives i know stepping into a new role in a new company they spend they do a listening tour they spend some time figuring out the environment um, building relationships figuring out their team trying to figure out what gaps need to be filled and I think that um, I think that that is compressed, though, because some of that I do think is getting sorted out in the interview process. Like it depends hiring, on the maturity of the organization, too, right? It it does, but I I sometimes feel like okay, whether you're working for the CEO, the CTO, the general counsel, whoever is hiring you, they are they're they're looking for something, and so they tend to hire someone who, you know. Um, we want this team upskilled. We want this program cheaper. It seems bloated. It's a little like more they, targeted. They kind of, yeah, I think I think some of that does happen during sort of the the interview and negotiation process. 
Um, and I also think that, okay, when you consider the pace of change, if you're at a company that is releasing, like has major releases every couple of days or weeks, that's really different than a company that has major releases every two to six months. Right, right. Right. And so if you walk into a company where the pace of change is really fast, it's kind of like some of those old jokes about, you know, startup years being like dog years or what have you. But um, some people can handle that pace of that learning curve and come up to speed really fast. And if it's a match for their experience, their temperament with the culture that they're coming into, then um, they may be able to make a lot more progress in six months. I, I, I don't think I don't think anyone. That sounds so best case scenario to me. I, know, I feel like I on average, it's not that at all. I think that I think that it takes um, it takes you know the first ninety days. So the first ninety days, you've figured out where your desk is and maybe who's on your team. Correct. And then six months in, maybe you have a sense of the gaps. You know, you have a better sense of the gaps, but you're right. starting to deliver at that point. I mean, that that's what that's what um, tech is demanding of people right. that they are delivering very early. Which, you know, mixed bag when you're an exec and have right, that right. kind of pressure on you. We talked about build versus buy and philosophies, Dave, and I want to ask about a trend now where it seems like. Security leaders and CISOs are happy to consolidate into a single vendor, even if that vendor is your platform provider, Ooh. right? And, and you know where I'm heading because it feels like we're all heading in a world where we're all Microsoft shops and CISOs are happy with that because it, I can negotiate better deals. I can get my licensing here and I can get all my logging and can get my security things here and there and everywhere from my platform provider. That feels, and I'm hearing CISOs saying it public, you know, it's uh, this consolidation of tools instead of having to manage all these vendors like we talked about earlier. Is that a fair assessment? I, I, I think it's a fair assessment, but I don't like it. At all? For security, <laughs> um, right? Well, I mean, let, so I'll, I'll explain a few things. So... If you've ever managed an engineering team that needed to pull out a vendor by the roots that was deeply embedded, you don't want to do it again. And so you, when you are thinking about total cost of ownership and you're doing your RFPs, you're thinking, <laughs> you're thinking, how expensive will this our switching yeah. costs? And if you've ever worked with a vendor whose pricing model, the tech was great, you know, chef's kiss, but the pricing model changes from year to year and is very upsetting <laughs> at a visceral level, then you want to have the ability to switch. Um, and so I think I think for those reasons, I don't love I don't love consolidation. But I think that this might go to some of my other experience. I feel like for me, so I'm I'm a detection technology person. That's how I got into this. That's why there's this cool overlap with fraud, like fraud detection, malware detection, detecting cheating in games, spam detection, like all of these things are interrelated, right? And it's a data game. So I believe that cybersecurity, like fraud prevention, like spam prevention, like all these other things, it's a data game. And getting all of those technologies to talk to each other is not trivial. So if you have had like a different vendor for your... Um, spam and spam detection from your phishing detection, from your phishing simulation, from your just general <laughs> training platform, and it's disconnected from like from threat intel, from 
from the from the SOC and folks who would be doing <laughs> like a, an investigation on the DLP technology and all of those are different technologies and they don't talk to each other. It is extraordinarily expensive to try and get them to talk to each other on the other end. Which is why there's consolidation because it, it cuts my costs in half. I mean, if I'm a yep. CISO and you're telling me I can run my security program for half of the cost and I can and, and just rely on, right. and absorb this, these risks here. Right. So, so for those reasons, yeah, I could stand for some consolidation. <laughs> I would, I would be here for it, but, but I would be very aware of the risks because the other risk besides the fact that they're switching costs and all of that is I want innovation. I, right. I want innovation. And that means I want folks to be in the market to be competing for me and my spend. And so I, I, I really want, I, I don't want anyone to sort of like be able to sit back. I want them all innovating as hard as they can. Uh, some, some quick button topics before we end. I want to ask this, is it easier today to talk security to old stodgy board of directors uh, than it was say two, three years ago? Are they, are they speaking security language because it's now on CNBC and it's now hot button topics with their peers? Or do you find you're still educating the board on security things that you expect they sh- these guys should know about by now? I think the conversations have evolved. I think it helps that there are things in the popular press. It's unfortunate that there have been huge breaches and, <laughs> and issues that are, are um, so obvious in the, in the world, but it, it does help make it more concrete when talking to them. I think there's still a lot of work to be done around maturity and risk. And what I mean is it's, you know, we have a a gap gap. (laughs) We, unlike the accounting and finance group don't have gap. So we are both explaining, (laughs) we are explaining what is appropriate and our performance against what is appropriate. And so just trying to um, educate a board on risk appetite. On the one hand, that's what they're there for. They are your risk appetite. But being able to have conversations and, and make decisions when some of this is very sort of abstract to them yeah. is, a, is, is still something requiring time yeah. and effort. Yeah, and figuring out metrics and measurements and how to display it and how to like make it stand out so you can tell your story within that 15 minutes you have with the board is like, that's a whole lot of podcasts. Absolutely, but, yeah. absolutely. It's hard to benchmark where our friends in finance, you go into a risk committee meeting, our friends in finance, they can say, these are the multiples for our sector. Right, right. <laughs> we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, you talk about risk uh, and, and going in with your lawyers. SEC reporting requirements start, I believe, today, today mm-hmm. or this week. Uh, we've had the SolarWinds CISO being charged. We have the Joe Sullivan situation. It feels like it's a little bit of a tricky time to be a CISO or a bit of a tricky time to negotiate your next job and figure out where your exposure to liability is. If you were asked to uh, uh, just give some guidance to your peers about you know, raising, making this bullet point or an important part of your next right. negotiation. What are we putting on the deer? What are what are the, the mandatory things that need to be right? So I think I think um, what's clear is that a CISO, CISO roles are are a little bit different. It's not just you know your next new job. The C is the, the C of CISO. <laughs> it's not magical. And um, it's, it, it's really a shift in what expectations are going to be of you. I 
had heard um, Bob Lord, I think it was, was saying that, you know, he was always going to have an attorney help him negotiate. And I, um, I, I now believe that that's a very, like a very good idea. (laughs) I think it's what's, what's tricky is, is that, okay, say you're going in as a CISO and a CISO is a senior director level VP, SVP, it kind of depends on the organization, but whatever it is, you're probably getting a package that looks a lot like any other executive at that level. (laughs) And they're focused on, you know, comp um, and benefits. Right. And you're going to have to say, thank you so much for this offer. I love this. I need to see that I will be on the DNO insurance. So I, the directors and officers, you're not magically on it just because there's a C in front of your name. <laughs> so, so uh, that, that part of the negotiation is not only going to be the, the person who's getting the job, congratulations on the offer you just received, by the way, Um, but also the person on the other side of the table who's probably from HR or maybe the CTO, there's some new things in the game. So what I would say is um, be aware of that going in. So you're you're getting the offer, you're going to be needing to do some negotiation, maybe beyond a bit what you did at your last role, DNO insurance, that's something you should be on for the company. Um, You may want your own um, professional liability insurance, your own policy that you carry. There may be consult an attorney, find an attorney <laughs> who you could consult, even if they're not going to walk in with you on this deal, at least someone who you can bounce questions off of. Um, so I, I think it's just, it's just, uh, it really is stepping into a different kind of role. And so just be aware of that going in. Do you expect recruiters will be proactively raising this topic as part of your recruitment as well? I think recruiters who are well versed in cybersecurity and paying attention will. Yeah. I think a lot of um, a lot of companies, their in-house recruiters, even if they are very good, they 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 will not they will yeah. not know this because <laughs> you know either there is someone in the role who right. who either they have a template for, and that template might not be appropriate anymore because there's been a lot of changes in the last two or three years. Or it will be like a brand new role and they'll have no template at all. Yeah, You talked about like some of the things going into an interview. If you're an existing CISO, are you going back and trying to retroactively get on that as well? That, you know, insurance, are you like, what are you doing if you're sitting now as a CISO? This has already happened. Am I, am I triggering conversations with my CISO and our legal team about this? I think that that is, I think that that's a good idea. If nothing else, a friendly conversation with the general counsel um, to figure out if you are on the DNO insurance. And if you're mm-hmm. not, then maybe that's a conversation you have with the GC or someone on their team. That's probably something that would need to be, some of those things might need to be approved by the board. And so it might be wise to coordinate on that mm-hmm. before, you know, don't surprise your audit committee with a request like that. <laughs> but um, but I, I do think that it's worth it to look into. If, if nothing else, even if you can't negotiate the changes you want, knowing what the state is and um, and and figuring out what you would want, I think is um, it's always good to have that in your back pocket. Uh, switching topics very quickly, because I want to pick your brain on this as well, is ransomware is still the number one issue for CISOs as far as, far as my, my reporting and my seeing. Uh, uh, everyone's on, it seems. And with this SEC re- reporting requirement, we're probably going to get breach notices every day for the next week <laughs> and so on. So I, my question to Aww. you is, should ransoms be paid? Should a CISO uh, uh, stockpile some Bitcoins for a bad day? Ooh, I hate that question so much. Um, I, 
I right. It's a it's a, it's a legitimate thing. I I think no. <laughs> um, I I think paying. I think paying. Um, I mean, I, every situation is different, but I think paying ransomware, paying ransoms, you, you know, uh, paying an extortion request is probably a a a, a bad practice. Um, I, I think what I would say is if you find yourself in a situation where that's happening, there are folks who make their business on, they, they negotiate with the, the ransomware folks. And so I would say... Leave it for the professionals? I would say, again, this is a situation where you talk to your GC in advance. I think this is something where if, if you're thinking about setting aside money in advance, <laughs> thinking about the whole situation in advance, you got to tabletop it. You got to figure out what's what's right um, for the culture of your organization and, and and legally appropriate. I am not a lawyer, but so Ali, all that stuff is falling apart. Everyone's owned, right? I uh, mean, like all your tabletops, your testing, your resilient strategy, everything. It everyone, big companies are is owned, which means that all those controls are falling apart. I know, but not everybody is paying the ransoms. Some people are just taking the hit. But there's a multi-billion-dollar wealth transfer happening from American organizations to Russia at alarming rates. I mean, not everyone is paying the ransom. I'm just trying to I, right, and 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 this sort of like actually turns back around to like yeah. I I think you're right that ransomware is what boards ask about what they want to talk about. Um, I think having a plan in advance versus after you're being requested. I think that's a good idea. Have a plan in advance, but that plan might be that you you're not paying. Um, right. and, uh, I, and if you are paying, what are you funding? Um, because a lot of what we see is sort of the, the, the dollar driven criminal enterprises behind some of these things. It's, it's being driven into dark place. It's not just, yeah. you know, it's not paying for someone's bread. <laughs> yeah. But it's, there's a certain level, there's a certain level of desperation that forces companies to pay, which is the, the these guys are going really, really after targeting really, really sensitive data. Right. And then now you're hacked out of business. Are you going to pay the ransom or go out of business? It becomes a very simple thing. Right, or you're a hospital, and and uh, yeah. some of the systems get taken offline, and that's um, health yeah. impacts or life impacts. So I, it's I, a I wouldn't want to say yeah. I would. Yeah, it's it's situational, but but in general, I think that the companies who have sort of been transparent and then refused to pay and just tried to deal with it, I I think that's um, an interesting approach. And last question for you is you've got your ears obviously close to the technology startups ecosystem and listen to a lot of product pitches. What stands out to you? Where are you seeing like real innovation? Are you big on LLM, AI, LLM, security use cases, solving problems at scale? I'm a, I'm a data technology person. So I am definitely always watching for novel or helpful applications of AI I'm still not entirely sure about how I feel about LLMs. I've seen some implementations that look like they're having real, they're really helping, for example, folks in a SOC or what have you. That's fantastic. Um, but I, I think that there are, I'm, I'm interested in ML and AI are traditionally po like pointed at detection use cases. That's my bread and butter. And so I'm really interested in some of the places they're being pointed at that maybe aren't quite so obvious. So um, one place that's kind of stock now is looking for sensitive data. 
Um, but I'm also interested in like, how could, how could ML or AI be used in a way to auto manage or auto assist with managing permissions in, a, in, in an IAM system? Right. Or um, how can we use AI and ML better to prioritize queues? in cybersecurity and customer service, anywhere anyone's working off of tickets or a queue, is there a way we can kind of relieve some of the burden using pointing the machines against each other, right, right. <laughs> essentially to work it out. So I do see I do see interesting things happening in that space. I think we'll see more of that um, pointed on some of these authentication use cases, not necessarily just about permissions, but um, in, uh, in identifying identity. Well, that was meta identifying identity, <laughs> constructing identity. So that's where that's kind of where my eyes go. Uh, who is the perfect client for Cartomancy Lab? Cartomancy Labs, and how do they get in touch with? Like, where do we find you? Sure. Um, uh, I think the ideal clients are uh, Fortune One Thousands or hot startups. Um, I like retail and financial services, but. Uh, Anyone who has a login and a checkout flow, <laughs> right, right, um, could could uh, could could use my help. I I do kickstarts, program kickstarts, revamps. My I think my focus is in kind of large, complicated <laughs> systems. So maybe you're a large, complicated company, or you have a large, complicated system to manage, or you have or want to have a large and complicated team. <laughs> and you can find me right now. Uh, LinkedIn, like if you know someone who knows me, then you'll know how to get a, get to me via LinkedIn. And I'm actually going to be launching a newsletter in the next couple of weeks, awesome. um, future, future cast by Cardamancy Labs, where I try and sort of bring together some of these topics to share with people how they are interrelated and, and um, what some of the problems are that we could be solving collectively. Ali Mela, founder and principal of Cartomancy Labs. Thank you very much. Appreciate the conversation. Thank you.